Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. with you. I usually reside at the Gorton version of uh, CCM, so it's great to be with you at Fallowfield. I'm enjoying getting to know some of you over these evenings. Um, I used to lead a church in East Manchester uh, that a few years ago we saw this beautiful Polish family uh, get saved and added to, and they were just quite remarkable. You know, one of those families that turn up and, and things just feel very, very exciting. Um, and they would work very hard, they had good jobs, and, uh, but during the summer they would disappear off back to Poland, uh, do lots of family things throughout the six weeks holiday, and then they would come back and uh, get back on with work. Uh, but one time when uh, they arrived home, they found that their house had been broken into, that um, someone had kind of known they were going to be away for a long time, and so like they'd ransacked the house, totally been through everything, through every drawer. They'd stolen their very expensive bikes and they'd written these horrendous things on the wall, racist statements about um, uh, them going back to wherever they'd come from and all sorts of horrible things. And some stuff about uh, the wife of this Polish couple that were just horrible, that made you think weird things. It was really, really grim. And I, I thought, well, what am I going to do about it? You know, I feel like I've got to act and I've got some friends on the dark side. Because of the kind of nature of the work I was doing, I was connected to some well-known people that I felt could assist. And so I rang the dark side, I rang my mate Steve on the dark side, and I, and I explained the situation. He said, what's the address? I told him the address, and he said, give me 20 minutes. And I was like, this is good. <laughs> and uh, 20 minutes, in fact, 18 minutes go by, phone rings, it's Steve. He said, I know who it is. And I'm like, fantastic. And he says, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, well, tell me the name and I'll ring the police. He said, no, we don't do that around here. The police cannot be involved. What do you want me to do about it? I'm like, can you get the stuff back? He said, no, it's all gone. What do you want me to do about it? And I was like, we're out of options, Steve. And he said, no, we're not. There is another option. Like, I can fix this. And I'm like, tell me. What would that look like? And he said, well, I've got a mate with a van. We've got some friends. I know where this kid lives. We'll go to his house. We'll take his front door off. And we'll put a bag on his head. We'll stick him in the van. We'll drive him up the Pennines. We'll take him out and give him a spade. We'll make him dig his own grave. And then we'll lie him in the grave. And then I said, and then what? And then he said, then we'll just leave him there. But that's his last chance. That's his last warning. That's the message that we will send. He will go home knowing that if he does anything like that again, that the same thing will happen, but he will die and they will do him in. And, I was, and he said, so what do you want me to do about it? And I thought for a minute, I thought that would be, well, if it scared him, I only scared him, then maybe that would be all right. So I said, go on then. No, as if I did. As if I did. You were like, sit down. You can't preach in this church. No, I, I said, absolutely not. I said, let, let, let's get to know him. Let's find out who he is. Who is it? Actually, it turned out it was one of the kids from my youth 
group. I knew him, and I knew his mum. And I was like, I'll just pop around and have a chat with his mum. That'll fix it. That's worth it. <laughs> but you know what? In that moment, I get this opportunity where I can take a shortcut. I can fast-track something. I can, I can, I've got this opportunity where I could take things into my own hands and I could deal with something that would mean I don't have to you know, fix it in another way. I get a shortcut moment. And today we're going to be looking at a shortcut moment for King David. If you've been tracking with our story so far, uh, you'll, have, you'll have heard about this amazing guy. Remember, David is the boy that's anointed king of Israel. He hasn't got a crown upon his head yet. He's not been crowned in a palace or a castle, but he's been, had his hands laid upon him by the prophet Samuel. He's not the likely choice. He's like the, the last kid in the family, the father's last son. He's the runt of the litter, but never, nevertheless, he's been called king. He's been announced king. It's a cool story, but it's all a little bit awkward because there's already a king on the throne. It's not like there's like a, a vacancy going. There's already a king. His name is Saul. And he has the job. But King Saul has been told that the job's done. It's over. God's anointing has been removed from him. His spirit has gone. And therefore, he's no longer officially king. But, but Saul doesn't know that David's been given the job. And so he's clinging to the power. And he's not taking it too well. He's ever so insecure about what's going on. And then this lad David turns up to the battle. Do you remember that famous battle between the Israelites and the Philistines? And he takes on a battle that King Saul should have taken on. And he defeats the champion by the name of Goliath. He rescues the Israelites and he leads the charge in destroying the army. And he's the hero. And people begin to sing this amazing song. Saul has slain thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And the song goes to like number one in the charts. Everyone is buying it. They're all loving it. Apart from one guy, his name is Saul. He doesn't like the song. And Saul wants to do, therefore, everything he can do to end the life of David. But everything he does seems to backfire. He says uh, to, to David, look, you can marry my daughter if you just bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. It turns out you can't buy those at Tesco's. And, um, and blokes don't really give them to you if you ask them, even if you ask them nicely. This is Saul's idea, send him into battle and then he won't come home and that's the, the problem dealt with. Turns out that David's really good at getting the foreskins and so uh, he goes out, kills 200 blokes and takes their bits back. Like how, what, how do you even carry those? Like is there a special bag? I don't know. Um, and then David marries Saul's daughter, he gets into the family. And then he becomes best mates with Saul's son. And it looks like he's moving in on the kingdom. And all the while, Saul is getting more and more afraid, more and more angry, and more and more wanting to destroy David. And, and King Saul has got this fascination with spearing him. He's just like, oh, I'd love to spear him. Spearing is his thing. He like wants to skewer David. And so David goes on the run, a bit like cat and mouse. And then we get to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. And we're told that uh, Saul has been informed about David's like most recent location. He's spotted in the desert of En Gedi. You know, you know it well, guys, don't you? It's, uh, it's beautiful, I'm told. It's now a nature reserve on the eastern border of the Dead Sea, if you want to know where that is. And Saul uh, wants David 
so, like, dead so badly that he's like, how many people should I take? 3,000 men. Totally disproportionate number of people with him. This massive army in order to take down David. But maybe he begins to see that God's anointing is on David and he's not going to be able to do it on his own. So he's like, I'll take 3,000 and we'll skewer him. And, uh, and so there you go. En route, it's, we're told, that Saul makes a stop. And I love this. It's one of those moments in the Bible that I just enjoy. And depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, you'll get a slightly different read on what he stops for. Uh, In the NIV it says, He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. I just, I love the detail. Thank you so much for putting that in there. You can guess what that means. In the American versions of the Bible, it says this. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Like only the Americans would re-script it. And some of them even say restroom. It sounds like in like ancient Israel, there was like, you know, like uh, one of those motorway services that, that David stops off for. If you want to know the Mancunian version, by the way, it, it would read something like this. Saul was so desperate for a turd that he took a dump in a cave. Some versions, if you're a bit old school, would say uh, Saul went in to cover his feet. I'm like, in what? Like, he really missed very, very badly, didn't he? Like, like, what was on his feet that, he, uh, that they that used that in the terminology? I don't know. Either way, Stall stops for a rest in the cave. And it's a big old cave. It's a cave for storing sheep. And, uh, and there at the back is David and his men. And they can't believe their look. They're hiding. They're hiding from Saul and all his men. And then in comes a guy squatting down, doing twosies, Yeah. And they can't believe how lucky they are. Like the guy intent on killing you has stopped within a stone's throw to, to um, drop the kids off. And then how many analogies can I get in before I need to move on? Um, some people have already left, I noticed, out the back. But they've got this chance to end it all. Like the, the, the cat and mouse can be over. It can be finished with. It can be done. No more life on the run. No more hiding in fear. No more, like, all the, all the worry and the anxiety. They can go back to their family and live happily, happily ever after. David can finally be recognized as king. It's all going to be okay. He can take a shortcut. Because Saul doesn't just go to the toilet. He also, like, lies down and goes to sleep. And so David spots his chance. And his men are all over it. They say this. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hand for you to deal with as you wish. He's kind of got this prophetic word. He's got this word that, he's, that he can now, like action, I'll put your enemy into your hand and you can finish him off and then get on with it. It's just too tempting. David could just stab him up. While he's asleep, he wouldn't even know what's coming. That's a bit gruesome, this one. I realise that. But instead, David sneaks up unnoticed. And then I think he kind of like dares himself. You know, you know when you're just like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? What I'll do is I'll try it a little bit and see how I get on. And so he just cuts the edge of his robe off just to see how he feels. Like, 
can I slit his throat? I'll just try slitting his robe. See if that works out the same. But in that same moment that he cuts off his robe, he realises what he's done. And it says this from verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed. Or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He's like conscience stricken. It means he's heart struck. He's troubled. He's distressed at what he's done. He's like, what have I just done? I've cut. Like, it's like going up to the queen and like cutting a dress. Like you just would never, ever do it. And he's absolutely devastated. He tried to fast track the plans of God. He tried to undermine the very thing that God had asked him to be a king, to be a holy king, to be a godly king. And in this moment, he could take the kingship, but by doing so, he would act in an ungodly way. And then Saul gets up and he begins to leave. And he's unhurt, even though David could have done it. And David risks his life. He kind of chases him out from the cave. He tries to go in search and he sort of throws himself at his knees, even though there's like 3,000 men. I imagine they're all ready, like, shall we skewer him? And David throws himself at the feet of Saul and he says, look, let me just tell you what's been going on. He trusts God and he begins to like unpack it and he tries to make, make peace and he explains what happened. You came in, you did a poo, but I, and then you went to sleep. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And it's almost like he holds up this bit of the edge of the robe and he says, this could have been your head, but I only got as far as the robe. And Saul is overwhelmed. Like he's, you know, he just realizes that His life could have been over in the snot and there's tears. And he says this, is that your voice, David, my son? Suddenly he's like, my boy, oh, I love you. And he wept aloud, you're more righteous than I am, he says. You have treated me well, but I have treated you so badly. And then Saul goes on even to admit that David will one day be king and that the nation will be his. He says this, I know that that you will surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. But imagine what a hard season that is. Imagine how difficult this is for David. He's got the promise. He knows what the future holds for him. He's got this amazing prophecy over his life that he'll be king. He's already got the anointing. Samuel said, you're the guy. And even the old king says, look, you're going to be king. But yet he has to wait. He has to be patient. He has no idea when that day will come. No idea when it's all going to come to being. There's no shortcuts. He just has to wait. My favorite theologian, a guy called Charles Spurgeon, says this. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. We are waiting. We're waiting for heaven. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for God to speak to us about our futures. We're waiting for our prayers to be answered. We're waiting for our friends and family to come to Jesus. We're waiting for healing of our sick friends. We're waiting to be married, waiting for babies, waiting for our neighborhoods to be changed, waiting for the world to be a better place. We are waiting, awaiting people. But we live in a world that wants the instant. Like we want instant everything. We want it now. 
We've become so, so impatient. You know what it's like when you ring the doctors because you're really sick and you need to see the doctor now and they say, it'll be three weeks. And you're like, I'll be dead in three weeks. You know what it's like when you are... When, when your Wi-Fi drops out and you're trying to wait for something to load on 3G, it's like, oh my gosh, like how long did we, how did we survive with dial-up? It's, uh, you guys weren't born. There used to be something where we used to have to ring the internet up and ask for things. Yes, I am that old. You know what it's like when you, uh, you order something online and then you think you're getting it the next day because you're an Amazon person and then, and then, you failed. You know, it's gone somewhere else and you have to wait. It's horrendous. And I know these are totally first world problems, but we've become useless at waiting. When, we, when we've told something's going to happen, it's like it needs to happen now. We've become so bad at waiting. We are waiting people. For me and my wife, it, we, were, we were waiting for years to have babies. I was married real young at 21. By 22, I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a really young dad. And then we had to wait years and years and years. Like we tried for babies for 10 years before realizing that was not going to happen. And then we had to go through years of doing infertility stuff and, and years then of adopting. And I, I knew there was a plan that God had for my life. I knew that he told me that one day I'd be a dad. I knew that even from my like, teenage years, like when I was 13, I knew that God said you'd be a dad. I, like, I knew. But the plans and the reality were so, so difficult, so different. Like Waiting for these things is so hard. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. What are you waiting for? What is it that you, your heart yearns for? What are the promises that you've been given that you're desperate to happen right now, but you just have to wait? Waiting is really hard. I'm not here tonight just to say, you know, wait, we're awaiting people because waiting's fun. I'm like, waiting is really, really painful. And I don't know about you, but waiting has this knack of like making, making me fear be fearful of the future. It plays on my insecurities. It makes me want to rush ahead and, and try and make things happen myself. It can cause doubt. It grows discontentment within me. It makes me feel, feel really unsettled and it hinders my hope. I read this message on social media this week from a friend of mine. It said this, waiting for God to show up, but he doesn't. So I'm done. And I'm like, my heart broke, waiting for God to show up, but he didn't, so I'm gone. How do we wait for God? How do we wait for God when we, we know what we want from God, but how, how, do we, how do we live in this moment of tension and desperation? Firstly, we wait patiently. We're told in the scriptures to wait patiently for God. Waiting is not a helpless state. Waiting is not on pause. Waiting is not just like this moment of awkwardness where we are paralyzed. We are not victims in our waiting. We wait patiently. We don't give up. Our tendency is to bury our heads, to get grumpy with God, but we are called to wait patiently. Be still, the scriptures tell us. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. Still your heart. That's desperate. That's yearning. That wants be still and wait patiently. 
Still your heart when panic sets in, when fear rises, when you're tempted to run away, when you want to hide from God, when you want to force things along because you know that if you just did a few things, you could probably make it happen. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. I read this, patience is what God gives those who ask for help in the waiting. Patience is what God gives us. It's like a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift to you and I for those who ask for help. Lord, I'm struggling with the weight. I'm struggling to carry this. I'm struggling to keep waiting. And he says, here is the gift of patience. We're told to wait expectantly. The temptation for me is to uh, give up waiting, just to not bother. I'm just, oh, forget it then. Forget those promises. Forget anything that I might be hopeful for. I'm going to just move on, come up with a new idea, a new direction, take a new path. And so I turn off hoping. But waiting is not passive. It's active. We stay hopeful. Psalms 33, 20 says, We wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. Spurgeon again continues, he says, Those who do not hope cannot wait. Hope is like this special ingredient, ingredient that keeps us hoping, keeps us waiting and keeps us watching for the Lord. Hope, hope is a special gift again given by God. And so we wait dependent on God. Waiting grows our reliance on him. When we realize we're inadequate, when we realize we can't fix the problem ourselves, when we can't heal something or save something or change something, it's only then that we realize that we are going to have to be dependent on God. And so we can either dwell on our failures or we can fix our eyes and remember God's abilities. We remember God's incredible character and what the scriptures tell us about him. That his love never fails us. That he's rich in grace. That he's rich in mercy. That he's rich in kindness. That he knows our deeds. That he's faithful to fulfill his promises. He cannot fail in his promises. He never breaks them. And we wait in agreement with him. Waiting in agreement means that we're, we're content with his timing. And this is where it gets really tricky. Often we think we know best that our timing is perfect. That if we ran things our way, we would get a better result. But Isaiah 55 reminds us, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God is never late. He can't do late. I'm really irritated by late people. But God is never late. He always runs on time. It is us that try to rush ahead of him. Often we try to, to do things in our own strength and we don't allow God the time to act. Don't demand that God work according to our will. But let's be the people that say, according to your will, your will be done. And I just want to finish by saying this. Even Jesus had to wait. The only son of the father had to wait for his right time. Right at the start of his ministry, we're told in Luke chapter 4 that the, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. And he doesn't eat for 40 days. And there's that bizarre little scripture said. He didn't eat for 40 days and then he was hungry. It's like, da-da, really? And then uh, the devil like jumps on the back of it and he says to Jesus, well, why don't you take this stone and turn it into bread? 
take a shortcut. Fast track, fast forward. You can do it. Use your power, feed yourself. But Jesus stays strong and he, and he answers back and he says, man should not live by bread alone. It's like he's saying to him, I'm waiting for God. I'm waiting for my dad. I'm not going according to your pace. I'm going according to my father's pace. And then the devil walks into the top of a mountain where you can see the nations of the earth. And he says, worship me and all this can be yours. The devil was saying, take a shortcut. Avoid the cross. Avoid pain and suffering. Get the, the prize. Get the world. It's almost like the devil knew that, that one of the prizes that Jesus would get for his suffering was that the nations of the world would be his. And the devil's saying, I'll give it to you. You just have to bow down here. That's all we've got to do. No cross, no suffering, no pain. And Jesus answers, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God's plan was that Christ would die upon a cross and would receive the nations as his inheritance, would receive all of us as his prize. And that isn't ever going to be to bow before the devil, but to hang upon a cross. Jesus waits for the purposes of his Father, waits for the purposes of God, even though it might mean his pain, his suffering, and his death. The waiting is going to mean it hurts Jesus, but the wait is worth it. And finally, the, the devil leads him to the top of a temple and he says, jump off. If you're the son of God, you'll survive. There's no way that God would let you die. He'll protect you. He'll send angels down, swoop down from every direction to catch you. Just prove you're the son of God. Why don't you do it while everyone's watching? Jump off and then they'll know that you are the Messiah. Do something spectacular. Do something sensational. Stun the crowd. Reveal yourself. Show them who you are. Take a shortcut. Reveal that you're God. But in that moment, save your life. But Jesus was called to use his life to save others. One day he would give up his life on the cross. A shameful spectacle of rejection and despising. Being spat on, not celebrated. But he chose obedience to the Father, obedience and the weight, even if it meant death on the cross at the end. He chose to wait. He chose the purposes of God over the purposes of the evil one. He chose God's perfect plan. The wait is worth it. It feels hard right now. It feels painful right now. You know what you long for in your heart. I felt that pain too. But the wait is worth it. God's timing and God's way. So what are you waiting for? Are you waiting tonight for God to speak about your future? Are you waiting tonight for God to begin to fulfill the future plans that he's spoken about? Are you waiting for friends and family to come to Jesus and you've been praying every single day that your sister or your brother would know Jesus and you're just desperate? Are you waiting for healing to come to yourself or to someone around you who's sick? I know that pain. I know that pain. Right now I'm waiting for a guy that I know is very sick and that I'm desperate for God to step in and rescue Right now I'm waiting because I've got a friend in Iran who I've not heard from now for many, many months. I'm waiting. I know the pain of waiting. But God's way and God's will is always worth it.
Are you waiting for a job? Are you waiting for a house? Are you waiting for a spouse? That kind of rhymes. Um, I suddenly feel like Dr. Zeus. What are you waiting for? Don't doubt, guys. Don't doubt God's plan. Don't doubt God's timing. Don't doubt God's patience, uh, his character. Be patient. Ask God for help. Like he's got this guy, this, this part of God called the Holy Spirit, and he's given to us as the one who's called the helper, and he wants to help us to wait. He wants to help us to keep on hoping, to remain dependent on God. So trust his character and trust his timing. Trust his promises to you. Let me finish with this final promise from Isaiah 40. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The promise is for those who continue to wait that strength will come, that he lifts up and restores us who wait for the plans of God to be fulfilled. And he enables us to keep on going.